1: Welcome everybody to the Healing Place Podcast. I'm your host, Terry Welbrock, and very excited to have with me today, Casey Gwynn, and he is the president of Alliance for Hope International. So welcome.
2: Hi, Terry. Great to be with you.
1: Yes. And we were chatting just for a few minutes beforehand, and I'm just um, really thrilled to have you here to talk about the hope aspect of everything we're going through in the world, uh, particularly in regards to domestic violence.
2: Yeah, it's been an amazing journey for us, to be sure. I began my career as a prosecutor uh, almost 35 years ago, and I was sick the day that everybody picked their area of interest and came back the following Monday, and the only area that hadn't been picked was domestic violence. That's how I became a domestic violence prosecutor and then advocate and now social change agent, uh, just because I wasn't there and nobody else wanted to do it. So it's been a very interesting journey to kind of come into this work 35 years ago, pretty paternalistic, not really coming from a feminist standpoint, And then slowly realizing it was my family too, generations of it, that I grew up in a home impacted by violence and abuse with a father impacted by violence and abuse. And slowly it became very personal. And 35 years later, uh, we're now, here we are. uh, I run an organization called Alliance for Hope International. And we love your focus on hope. We love your focus on hope as a pathway to healing. And so when I saw your work, I just had to reach out and say, we need to connect and talk about hope, particularly now more than ever.
1: Yes, thank you. Well, and I, I just, I feel so blessed to have this platform and to offer that hope, especially in regards to healing. I too grew up, my dad was extremely violent during my first 10 years of life. And now that I understand adverse childhood experiences or ACEs and I understand um, how trauma, generational trauma and how... I look back and I think, oh, my gosh, Dad, I wish he was still alive to talk to him about, you know, I realize now how much he experienced violence in his household. And fortunately, he was able to receive counseling. And I remember the day he sat me on his knee and said, I never should have been hitting you out of frustration and anger, and I will never hit you again. And he never did hit me again. And so that was a very healing moment for our relationship.
2: Yeah, that's great. I didn't uh, know much about ACEs or HOPE, very early on in my journey as a prosecutor i just became very focused on how to stop violence against women and girls that became my passion in my career as a prosecutor i went on to become the elected prosecutor in san diego in 1996 and served 8 years as the elected prosecutor in san diego and during that time we started to realize that the answer was not simply criminal justice system intervention or mental health intervention the answer was we had to create community for survivors we had to offer survivors a place to go where they could belong long after the crisis. So we started planning what what ultimately became the San Diego Family Justice Center, which was the first 25 agency collaborative of its kind in the country where victims and their kids could come one place. And we started focused on domestic violence and then expanded out to child abuse, sexual assault, elder abuse, human trafficking, 25 agencies, 120 professionals, 120 volunteers on any given day coming together in 40,000 square feet in downtown San Diego. And of course, homicide started to drop uh, survivors start, stopped going back over and over again to their abusers because now they had the resources they needed. They had a pathway forward and they had things for their kids. So that journey into figuring out what services could look like, not just a shelter, not just mental health services, not just, you know, go here for this, go here for that, tell your story over there, tell your story over there. But this kind of whole notion of bringing everything together is what really kind of changed the trajectory of my life. Life. We opened that center in 2002 of the San Diego Family Justice Center. And in January of 2003, I spent two days on the Oprah Winfrey show. And Oprah Winfrey endorsed the concept of the Family Justice Center. And afterwards in the green room, she said, I just changed the rest of your life. And I kind of laughed and thought, you know, nice to be in Chicago in January, uh, but not exactly a life-changing experience. And Oprah kind of rolled her eyes and said, I just changed the rest of your life. And I kind of laughed again. And I said, it was such an honor to meet you. And she's an amazing human being. And I left. And within two years, we'd had site visitors from 77 countries come to the San Diego Family Justice Center. And slowly that concept of, Why can't victims go one place for everything they need? Why can't we create this culture of hope under one roof? That became the pathway. I left office in 04. We started opening these centers all over the country. We had a camping program that was part of the San Diego Family Justice Center called Camp Hope San Diego that ultimately now has become Camp Hope America. And so we started looking at this question of how do you give people a place to belong and heal and then begin to move forward in their lives. And it wasn't until 2012 that I met somebody, Dr. Chan Hellman at the University of Oklahoma, who was measuring hope in everything that he did. And I didn't even know you could measure hope And Vince Felitti, the author of the ACE study, co-author of the ACE study with Bob Onda. Uh, Vince was already a friend in San Diego, been a friend for years, but I'd never really gone deep in the ACE study. So 2012 was just a life-changing year for us as an organization, me as an individual. Went deep in the ACE study, figured out I score a five on the ACE scale, uh, and started figuring out that you could measure hope and that increasing hope in somebody's life predicts well-being. And so we changed the name of our organization from what was then the National Family Justice Center Alliance to Alliance for Hope International. And it's not a throwaway word. It really is. We measure hope in all our programs. We've started publishing research on it uh, all over the country and, and looking at how when hope goes up, people
1: do better in life. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. You've hit my heart smiling. I can literally feel it. And I love that because I have heard people talk to me on the show about, well, hope's kind of that little, you know la la word like you really can't grasp it but you're saying i love the yes it's scientifically proven that as hope goes up it does have an impact
2: i love emily dickinson but hope is not just uh something with uh, feathers uh sitting on a branch uh hope is the belief that your future can be brighter than your past and that you play a role in making it so by the goals you set and the pathways you pursue to those goals that's kind of our adult definition came right out of the early research of dr rick snyder at the university of kansas in the 1990s and early 2000s and then gallup picked it up and started measuring hope in a whole variety of settings uh, in the gallup student poll and a lot of the gallup national research about seven or eight years ago chan hellman I uh, met uh, Dr. Shane Lopez, who after Rick Snyder died, uh, Shane became kind of the University of Kansas hope research guy, uh, changed Chan's life, and Chan now runs the Hope Research Center at the University of Oklahoma. When we started working with kids, we realized, you know, kids are the first uh, human beings to be robbed of hope. Kids are always robbed first from trauma, violence, abuse, uh, things in their life that they have no control over and we wanted to use the adult definition, but thankfully there was an emerging kind of children's hope scale, so we started using the children's scale. We tried to go with pathways and agency, motivation for goals, how to find your steps. It wasn't easy to teach kids, so we created and validated a new definition of hope for kids, that hope is believing in yourself, believing in others, and believing in your dreams. And you can teach that. We now teach it to seven-year-olds at camp every summer all across America. And if a child can figure out what it means to believe in themselves, what it means to believe in other people, because if you just believe in yourself, you are a narcissist. Right. So we've got, you can't just believe in yourself. You've got to learn how to believe in others, cheer for others, support others. And if you don't have that future orientation toward who you want to be and what you want to do, you're not a high hope person in life. And so the deeper we got into it, the more transformational it's been to my life. So higher hope teachers do better teaching kids than lower hope teachers. Higher hope people do better out of cancer than lower hope people. Higher hope therapists do better working with people in need than lower hope therapists. And this is a very fluid process in our lives. So right now with the pandemic, I mean, hope tends to go like this in people's lives. One day They got some goals, they got some pathways. The next day they realize they can't control this, they can't control that. And if you don't have goals that you have some control over, you don't have hope in your life. It's not just a wish thrown into the universe. It really is about goals and pathways. So it's been really amazing to work with Dr. Hellman at the University of Oklahoma and now really to be asking ourselves, so yes, we in our work with survivors, adults and children, we wanna be trauma-informed. We wanna understand what's happened to people. We want them to be able to contextualize what's happened to them as they think about their past in order to be able to move forward. But we can't just be trauma-informed. We have to be hope-centered too. We have to have people not just look back and process, but then to go forward. So that's kind of our journey. It's, it's both personal and professional. uh, And I'm excited about uh, everything we're learning right now and what we're seeing during the pandemic, figuring out how to help people find hope and a pathway forward.
1: Yeah, this is almost just a, I don't want to, it's, well, one, I'm excited I don't want to say excited. That doesn't seem like the right word, but I am excited to see where we go as a, as a human race from this and how we rise Um, because I really do have hope. And I say it, I've said it over these past few weeks, two months of, I just think this is an opportunity for us um, to connect and to yes, to help one another heal and um, find that hope.
2: So it's been interesting how it's transformed kind of the way we have 30 staff at Alliance for Hope International, and they're divided between a variety of programs. We help start these family justice centers, wraparound services for victims of violence and abuse. We have centers in 42 states and 25 countries. Then we have our Camp Hope America program for children impacted by child abuse and domestic violence that (laughs) happens all over the country and is now moving international. And then one of our biggest programs is called the Training Institute on Strangulation Prevention.
1: Yeah, I saw it doesn't
2: that. seem like it should go with hope and healing. right? Uh, and yet, of domestic violence victims in the world, those most robbed of hope are those who are strangled or choked by their partner. Uh, a rage-filled, usually misogynistic man who takes his partner around the neck and squeezes and takes her to within seconds of death robbing her of any ability to set a goal, any ability to have any control over her life, she knows that he decides in seconds whether she lives or dies, the ultimate robbery of hope. And of course, out of that, uh, the highest rate of suicidal ideation in domestic violence victims is strangulation assault survivors. They're having a normal response to what's happened to them. They don't think it's normal but they're having a normal response to being robbed of hope in their life. And so these programs, these three major programs, then we have a survivor's program and we do a lot of work called the justice project where people hire us to look at what looks like a suicide, but turns out to be a murder or a situation where somebody has been seriously violated and the criminal justice system fails at intervening and holding the perpetrator accountable. So in these programs now, we've really figured out it's all connected so, yes, victims get robbed, but the perpetrators are robbed, too. It's not an excuse, but you can't find a man that abuses women, I don't think, that didn't grow up in a home with violence and abuse or drugs and alcohol or something. I, I, I think there's very few abusers of women and girls that have a zero ACE score from childhood trauma. And again, not an excuse, just an explanation. So the passion for me has become, how do we help kids with, ACE, with high ACE scores? Because we all know that high ACE scores aren't a destiny. Lots of people overcome childhood trauma. Lots of people navigate their way through it with mistakes along the way, me included. Right. But we have to figure it out and we have to help kids figure it out. And so in the journey of all of this pandemic, we've realized, You know, before COVID-19, domestic violence victims were already experiencing a pandemic of gender-based violence. They were already isolated. They were already being manipulated. They'd already lost control of their lives. Then you overlay COVID-19, and it only gets worse uh, in that. And you take that rage-filled man, and now you take away his job, and you put him at home with his partner, where now all he's got is his rage and misogyny and his desire to control somebody or something in his life. Uh, and you've got a recipe for a lot of violence and abuse, which is what we're seeing now all over the country and around the
1: world. Yeah, I had noticed you wrote a a blog piece that was the pandemic within the pandemic and addressing that exact thing of, um, yeah, domestic violence, but then the murder-suicide rates going up.
2: It's been an important piece to get out there too, not because it's good news in any way, shape or form, but just the messaging. Uh, survivors, uh, if, if you're a victim of violence and abuse, you don't have to stay in an abusive home. You don't have to stay under quarantine. You can get out. There's help available. and. Amazingly enough, most women who are killed in America in domestic violence homicides are killed after they leave the relationship in in normal circumstances. You say, I'm done with you. I don't deserve this. I want to get out. She becomes more likely to die. What we're seeing right now in the pandemic is she's more likely to die when she stays because now she's trapped with this rage-filled human being. And these murder-suicides, we think they're up between 70 and 100% in the last five weeks in the United States. So getting this message out that you're, you, you can leave, there are resources out there. Um, yes, a lot of the domestic violence shelters aren't filling their beds because uh, it's, a, it's a community spread environment to go into a domestic violence shelter. But we're using hotels and motels. There are safe places you can go. You can connect with somebody that believes in you, that believes that you deserve better and you don't have to put up with that situation. But it has been kind of the perfect storm because uh, even though calls for domestic violence help have gone up during the pandemic, arrests have not gone up. Officers, police officers don't want to take these guys to jail. And when they're going to jail, they're getting let out really fast because the defense bar is all saying, hey, we don't want our clients in jail because they might get COVID-19. So the most rage-filled men on the planet that are the most dangerous people we're dealing with Going to jail and then they're getting out quickly because of COVID. So we've got this complex set of dynamics where the messaging just has to be as survivors, you you don't deserve to be treated like that. And there is help available. And whether agencies are operating virtually and you can use live chat or you can use Zoom or you can use WebEx or other platforms to talk to advocates and to plan for your safety, we are there for you. We have resources available to make sure that you can stay safe. So that's been kind of our focus on the services end of our work. And then on the staffing end with our own staff at Alliance for Hope, because we support family justice centers across America, camps across America, community-based agencies across America, we've had to make sure our staff, who have a high ACE score, because we all do this work often because of what we survived. Uh, We've had to figure out how they're triggering in all of this and how to maintain hope in their lives. So it's been really interesting. Like our typical staff meeting would usually be briefings on what everybody's doing. In the last seven weeks, uh, one staff meeting, our whole agenda was if hope is believing in yourself, believing in others and believing in your dreams, where have you seen hope this week? That was the whole agenda for the whole meeting. And people talked about their fears and anxieties, but they also talked about, well, I saw hope when Uh, I saw hope when Riley uh, went over to Madison's house because Madison wasn't feeling well. And Riley uh, gave her a a gift, uh, a kind gift just to make her smile. I saw hope in that. And you start sharing that. And pretty soon people are seeing hope all around them.
1: Yeah, for sure. Which brings me back to, if we loop back around for a second, back to the ACEs study. And when you were talking about measuring hope, is that in alignment with resilience and that whole, I know when I took my ACEs score test and got my score, I also did the resilience part of it because everyone always said, Terry, how did you survive so much? And I was like, I, I don't know, <laughs> until I realized, oh, because my resilience score was high.
2: Yeah. yeah. Hope and resilience have a really interesting relationship and in kind of strength-based research. Hope is is important. Resiliency is important. Uh, but Chan Hellman says, uh, hope is the mindset that drives resilient behavior. So bouncing back is really important, but you can't stop with bouncing back. Resilience is this ability to bounce back from bad things. Hope is what takes you forward in life. So when you hear people say, well, I'm really resilient. I'm good at setting goals and accomplishing. That's not just resilience. That's resilience and hope. So in our research, resilience drives hope and hope drives resilience. But interestingly enough, we just put out a piece about campus last summer where hope was more significant than resilience. Uh, if Absolutely. if you if you keep bouncing back from bad things, you never go anywhere. And you keep that kind of baseline, and you may be losing your baseline each time you bounce back because of the impact of trauma. So resilience is important. It's a little fuzzy. Everybody's calling everything resilience now. What? Resilient communities, resilient people, resilient organizations. I, I get it. Um, I mean, interestingly enough, though, uh, hope is easier to teach. It's easier for kids to understand. It's easier for adults to understand. And it's easier for us to really drill it down to, okay, some really bad stuff has happened to you, and I'm so sorry you didn't deserve any of that. You've been an amazing human being in bouncing back and surviving this. Now, where do you want to go and who do you want to be? And you can't start with, well, I want to be a doctor in 10 years. You start with, well, today I'm going to be kind to my kids for the next hour. That's my big goal today. Only say kind and affirming things to my kids because they're scared too. They've been traumatized. And so we can take hope down to the smallest little goal because hope breeds hope. Hope begets hope. And that's any good case manager, any good therapist always starts with everybody with the tiniest little goals. Uh, And we can now measure it. We we measure hope on our staff at Alliance for Hope. So the adult hope scale is eight statements you rate yourself on on what's called a Likert scale. Uh, and you rate yourself on those statements, and you come up with a score between 8 and 64 that is your global dispositional hope score in your life. And you may have domains of hope, too. So, you know, you may have a high score in a romance uh, domain or in a relationship domain, but a low hope score in a nutrition domain or a fitness domain. So there's kind of different domains of hope in people's lives, too. And then we do the same thing with kids. We measure global dispositional hope. We use Rick Snyder's original scale, somewhat modified, six items that kids rate themselves on, and we have seven-year-olds measuring their HOPE score. And Gallup has now said that if you can increase a child's HOPE score by two points and sustain it, it's a letter grade in school. It's the difference between a C student and a B student. Uh, If you can raise their HOPE score four points and sustain it, it takes a C student to an A student without any reference to their IQ. And that's a pretty amazing thing. So we got to be about hope. We got to be about how to increase hope in people's lives. And at the end of the day, that has to be about people's ability to set their own goals about who they want to be and what they want to do, and then how they can get to those goals from the small ones all the way to the big ones.
1: Right. I think you just raised my hope score a few notches because, <laughs> serious, this is great, and I want to take the assessment because I want to see what my hope score is. Is it now? Is that something that's accessible to people, or do they have to be working in a, one of your programs?
2: No, it's uh, you can find it. You can Google Hope Score. Uh, we have a website that we're building. It's only partially functional right now. Where an adult can take their Hope Score at hopescore.com or hopescore.org. It's free. Okay. Uh, obviously, we're writing a lot about it. Rick Snyder, in his original research, had a couple of different kinds of scales. Uh, In our new book, Hope Rising, How the Science of Hope Can Change Your Life, we uh, took it down to those eight items. But then we often add filler questions. So when I administer to our staff, because our entire staff takes their hope score, uh, we started doing it every year. Now we're doing it every other year. And the goal is for them to figure out what their own hope score is. They don't have to share it. Uh, but they can know whether hope is going up or down in their life. Wow. We just had the first community in America, Thurston County, Washington, say, we're going to measure hope in the entire population. And we're going to challenge agencies to measure hope. Because if you work in an agency where your hope score goes down over time, either the agency is really unhealthy or you're in a really unhealthy place. Because the work that you do shouldn't be robbing you of hope in life. But it does. It does you know, first responders right now. I just did a webinar for nurses uh, on COVID-19. And most of my webinar was not about PPE. It was not about procedures in hospitals. It was about how to maintain hope in their lives because they're getting robbed of it every day, watching people die, FaceTiming with people, with their family members as they take their last breath. Unbelievable trauma, both direct and vicarious that they're navigating. And so our goal has to be maintaining hope in their lives, maintaining hope in our own lives, even while we're trying to help others.
1: Yeah, for sure. We just had a death in our family in the last few days. And um, the story that came out of it was this hospice nurse and how she lifted the family with these stories because as she worked after um, my father-in-law had passed, that she would be doing things with him and the family was around, but then she would tell stories that would just bring them, lift them all up. And it, it had a really profound effect on the entire family. And I thought, what a beautiful gift she's giving to, to others. So I'm, I'm assuming she would probably have a high hope score and that she was able to. She,
2: she probably would. The, the book that inspired me a number of years ago was by a doctor named Jerome Groupman. He's a cancer doctor at Harvard. He wrote a New York Times bestseller called The Anatomy of Hope in 2003. Great little book. He didn't know you could measure hope, though. He didn't know Shane Lopez or Rick Snyder or Chan Hellman or anybody else. He just basically said, I see there's something in some people that do better out of cancer. And even when they don't make it, even when they die, they just die with more peace in their life that they had been able to do what they wanted to do with their life, set goals, accomplish things. Doesn't mean they didn't make mistakes, but they were able to navigate from those forward in life. And I took that book when we first started doing the lit review for our book, hope rising. And, and then I started looking at all the studies and, realized i've been missing this for years i mean there, we have two thousand studies for the lit review for hope rising how the science of hope can change your life and of course what you find is higher hope people have more pro behaviors higher hope people navigate better out of trauma violence and abuse higher hope people uh, do better in almost every domain than lower hope people and lower hope people tend to struggle with negative conduct they tend to be negative goalers so if i'm Struggling with my own childhood trauma and I end up, you know, abusing my wife and drinking too much. My goal would sound something like I'm not going to drink this weekend. That's a negative goal. That's an avoidance goal. And low hope people make goals like that, not high hope people. High Hope people would say, you know, this weekend, I'm going to do something really fun out in nature. I'm going to go take a hike. I'm going to go read a book with my kids. They would set positive goals because higher Hope people set positive goals in their life, lower Hope people set negative goals in their life. And you can quickly see why the criminal justice system, which is a negative goaling operation, don't do that again. Yeah. Stop doing that. Or a campaign like, even even the good campaigns, like no more sexual assault or domestic violence in America. It's a negative goal. No more violence and abuse. Mm, how about we treat each other with honor, dignity, and respect and equality? That's a positive goal. So a negative goal doesn't usually accomplish very much because you're applying that negative goal to negative people who have already been robbed of hope at some point in their life. And they need to be able to focus on positive goals so it's been a really kind of fascinating journey to go through all this. I just worked with a, a 40-year teacher, retired teacher in San Diego to write a children's book uh, called Goodnight Moonbright, that is about the science of hope for kids. Uh, and the whole goal of the book is to have kids start answering the question, where did you see hope today in your life? Like that can be the question at night when kids go to bed. Parents can say, now, I really want you to have hope in your life. Hope is believing in yourself, believing in others and believing in your dreams. Where did you see it today in your life? Did you see somebody? Did you see yourself believe, believing in what you were doing or who you were? See somebody else. Did you have a dream today or just think about any any goals you have in your life? Uh, that dynamic can be taught to kids, even in that simple Uh, Kind of a way and so the research that we've got in hope rising is really fascinating I just trained 1600 teachers in Oklahoma not too long ago. Their average a score was almost a four among teachers in Oklahoma So the teachers are teaching kids with high scores. The teachers have their own a scores. They're struggling with their own struggles and trauma in life And I had to tell the teachers, you got to keep rebuilding hope in your life every day. You got to fill your gas tank because as Brene Brown has said in another context, you cannot give what you do not have. So you can't exactly be a hope giver if you don't have any in your own life.
1: Yeah. Well, you took the word out of my mouth when you said fascinating because it is. I mean, wow. Mm Yeah. Yeah. All right. So any myths or facts that you want to clarify for people in regards to, well, I mean, obviously you've clarified a lot in regarding hope, but maybe domestic violence. Um, Yeah.
2: I think just a couple of things probably are important. I think one of the great mistakes that people throughout the culture make in dealing with violence and abuse is to make it about us and them those people, you know, I began my career kind of thinking it wasn't about my family or me. I mean, I had white male privilege. I had lots of kind of paternalistic approaches that I brought as a prosecutor. I'd gone to Stanford University and UCLA School of Law. And I thought, you know, I've earned the right now to be this lawyer in the criminal justice system. And I'm going to help those people or those families. And so many of us have that. You know, I, I just got it this week. Well, why don't they just leave in a conversation? Why, why, if, if this is such a problem during the pandemic, why are women staying? It's like, well, as soon as you start thinking those women or they, you're doing exactly what I'm talking about. And I just have to say, you know what? It's about us, it's not about them. Uh, have you ever stayed in a job that was unhealthy? Have you ever stayed in a relationship? Did you ever stay in a relationship that was unhealthy? I did. Did you ever end, your, end up in a situation where you could have left, but it just wasn't, it was too complicated to leave. So you stayed and thought you could navigate it or you thought love could conquer all. So you could figure it out. And somehow if you were a different person, everything would work out okay. And you start having that conversation and you realize it's all connected. And even when we talk about strangled women, you know, people say, "What? Well, how bizarre that a woman would get strangled. Mm. We get strangled by fear, anxiety. We get strangled in our lives by all kinds of things. Lots of people endure really bad circumstances and don't realize what it's doing to them. Don't realize that they need to get away from that situation. Uh, we all have these analogies in our lives to the things. I think for me, that's been the biggest learning in the last 35 years of my life. So it wasn't just yes, I gotta make sure that I don't repeat the cycle that my father did with me. I mean, I, my father used physical discipline in a way that I later sent people to jail and prison for uh, as a prosecutor. I couldn't spank my kids. I, I had to make a decision that I was never gonna lay a finger on my children that wasn't done in love. It was too scary to even think about it. So yes, we have to make decisions in our own lives to break that cycle. But I don't look now in the work I do with uh, kids exposed, I don't look look at them as those kids. They're me too. I had some benefits in my life. I didn't end up in prison or jail for some of the things that I did early on, uh, mistakes I made. Um, But I also have to realize that even as I'm doing the work, I too can be robbed of hope. And I can have it be sucked right out of me to the point where I become cynical or sarcastic or bitter. Uh, in the things that I'm doing. I'm watching the rage now, this pandemic, people raging about liberty and freedom, and I'm not wearing a mask and all of that. That rage is the loss of hope. Because in our research on hope, uh, we we created a continuum uh, called the Hope Continuum. Hope, rage, despair, apathy. So hope is you have goals and you have pathways to get to your goals. Rage is you have goals, but you, don't, you can't get to your goals. You're blocked in some way from your goals. That's exactly what's happening now. These people that are raging, it's not, that's not I hope activity. They're not really about liberty or freedom. or They're actually raging because they want this to be over, and they want to be done, and it's not done. And so rage, anger, and frustration are natural human emotions when you can't get to hope. And then when you start to give up, you descend, as you know, in all of your work and what you've written. And I've been reading your newsletter about despair and how people start to despair. You still kind of have goals, but you're losing your motivation to even pursue them in life. How can this ever change? How do I ever get out? Uh, And then when you get to the opposite of hope, you get to apathy when people say nothing's ever going to change. I can't do anything about it. I can't make any difference. He's never going to change or this situation is never going to change. I can't do anything. That's that's hopelessness. That's apathy, the inability to set a goal or even think about the steps to pursue a goal. And so for me now, I look at that through the lens of everything I do, whether it's the pandemic whether it's challenges in a relationship, whether it's work with my kids or grandkids. It's like, so where are they in this journey of hope, rage, despair, and apathy? And I thought when I first met Chan and we did our lit review for the book, I thought, sure, okay, so if you get to apathy, then you got to get back to despair. And then you got to get to anger and then you get to hope. And of course, Chan said, no, we're going to create another continuum and that's going to be the pathway to hope. And sure enough, that pathway looks really different. That pathway became set a goal that you can control the smallest goals, if necessary, figure out how to identify the steps toward that goal. And then his favorite piece of it, which changed my life was start creating future memories of success. Start imagining it's Maslow's hierarchy, right? Yeah. It's, it's Maslow's a bit self-actualization. Start imagining what it would be like to, to be that person or to achieve that or accomplish that. And if we can create, what's it going to feel like when I can do that? Uh, One of our staff meetings recently was, where are you going to go on vacation when the pandemic's over and why? That was the whole staff meeting. (laughs) And people were imagining being in Hawaii or being in the Caribbean. And lo and behold, hope went up in their life because they were imagining this future memory of success. And that's how you nurture hope back into somebody's life whether it's a survivor of domestic violence, whether it's somebody who's lost their job, or whether it's somebody who's at a stay at, in a stay-at-home situation right now wondering if this is ever going to end. you got to be able to imagine it if it's going to ever happen. So that's been probably the biggest lesson of all of this for me is to realize that it's about us. All of this is about us, not about them. Uh, and all of us have the same opportunity to apply the science of hope to our lives.
1: Beautiful. So, how you've been talking about your book. How do people get a hold of it? Is it on Amazon?
2: It's on Amazon. Uh, you can go to allianceforhope.com and to our store as well. Uh, our children's book, Good Night Moon Bright, is in our store at allianceforhope.com uh, as well. And we are just, uh, we just created some new t shirts too that are kind of fun that are raising a little money for our survivor programs called Hope hashtag Not Cancelled. Uh, they, they were inspired by a Camp Hope the boy uh, in Bridgeport, Connecticut. His name's Ethan. And Ethan was, uh, he started Camp Hope in his freshman year of high school at the Family Justice Center there in Bridgeport, Connecticut, and navigated all the way through high school, uh, domestic violence, family, history of violence and abuse with uh, his dad. And here he is, his senior year of high school this year, the pandemic hits. He's the class of 2020. Oh. No prom, no graduation, oh. no school even going on, nothing. And Ethan sends an email to the coordinator of Camp Hope in Bridgeport, Sasha Collins, and says, I want to get the addresses of all the Camp Hope families because I'm going to go to the food pantries and collect food to deliver to the Camp Hope families. And so he does. And he goes to six different food banks. He gets the food, he collects it, and then he goes and delivers it to the families. And then he sent a a beautiful little picture to the director of the family justice center that Deb Greenwood. And he said, Deb, everything else has been canceled, uh, but hope's not canceled. They can't cancel hope Deb. So I'm taking food to everybody because I want them to get the message. Hope is not canceled. And he's 17 years old. And he, if he's struggled with more issues than anybody could have imagined growing up in a family with violence and abuse. And at 17, what's he doing? He's a hope giver to other families in the middle of a pandemic. He doesn't have any money. He doesn't have any ability to donate big amounts. All he can do is go to food pantries, get food, and then take it to the families. So we made a T-shirt to honor Ethan. Uh, And it was pretty cool. Last Friday, I found out that Ethan, who's the senior in high school now, four years into Camp Hope America, he just got a a full ride to a four-year college in Bridgeport, Connecticut. It's like there is a God. There is justice in the universe. Uh, that is what it's all about.
1: That's beautiful. You know, we have a, I have a therapy dog, Sammy, who's actually, you see her little head right here, she's laying on the floor, we do, Sammy's Bundles of Hope is our project, and so we fill it with books and things for kids, and we drop them off to um, safe houses or homeless shelters where children are, and they're filled with stress trinkets, like uh, stress balls and Play-Doh and bubbles. And um, so I'm going to have to get some of these t-shirts and put those in. I love it. Or, or your book because, um, yeah, I just think that's beautiful.
2: And if there are survivors uh, listening to this podcast, Terry, and I know they do, if you don't have any money, if you're in a bad place and you can't even afford uh, to buy a book online on Kindle or on Amazon, uh, just email me, Casey at allianceforhope.com. I will send you an electronic copy of the book for free. It doesn't have the pictures in it or the links, but I will just send you the book. Uh, We just donated it to a bunch of uh, survivors that are doing a book group in a jail in Tulsa, Oklahoma. They're in custody. uh, And they said, we don't have any money. And I just, I gave them some copies and then I gave them electronic copies by email. Uh, So more than happy to make sure that you get something in your hands where you can figure out uh, how to rebuild hope in your life because we all need it. And we're all struggling with it right now. Whether you grew up with violence and abuse or not, uh, it's a battle for hope in all of our lives right now.
1: Yes, that's beautiful. And thank you for that gift. Beautiful. So is there anything else that you wanted to address with the audience before we finish up?
2: If you'll allow me, let me just close with a little piece of uh, Hope Rising. When we feel trapped in the pain of today, hope reminds us that we will not be there forever. When we feel stuck in looking back, hope calls us to look forward. When we've given everything to others, hope helps replenish our heart and mind and body and soul. When we are demoralized, hope can point us toward friends who can help lift our spirits. When we lose our way, hope can give us back the roadmap for our lives. When we fear the worst, hope reminds us that God is still in control. When we are hurting from the actions of others, hope is a pathway to resilience. When we must accept the consequences of our own mistakes, hope can lift us out of the shame. When our heart is broken, hope offers us the courage to look forward to healing. When the diagnosis is grim, hope calls us to the battle for survival. When we feel bound in the darkness of despair, hope reminds us that we can trust in the future ahead of us. When a dream does not come true, hope can light the fire to dream again. When we must say goodbye to those we love, hope reminds us that the best is yet to come. And I guess that's my, uh, pitch for today, Terry, Ah. people that are listening have the ability to hear my voice and have the ability to process what they're hearing. Uh, hope is still there. And no matter what the back back backstory, no matter what the pain, uh, hope helps us transform pain into purpose. And, uh, I know that's the calling of your career and your life, and that's why I was so captivated by you when I first started learning about you, and uh, honored to stand with you in this journey to try to be hope givers.
1: Oh my gosh! Well, thank you. As obviously you can tell by me wiping my eyes, wow, that was beautiful. I'm still, it's still streaming. I have tears. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, thank you. Oh my gosh.
2: Blessings on you. Tanya.
1: Yeah, everything. Thank you for sharing, shining this beautiful light of hope, as I call it often um yeah and i i need to go order the book <laughs> right away and i just i just feel honored to have you here with me so thank you
2: well thank you the book is the most intimate and personal thing i've ever written we've we've i've been involved either with another author or personally in writing 10 books over the last 11 years but this one was the most intimate and personal because i told my whole childhood trauma story. I'd never told it before, including being sexually abused when I was 11 years old by a total stranger. Chan Hellman told his story, and he's a tenured professor at the University of Oklahoma. Chan scores an eight on the ACE scale. And uh, we finally just had to tell the truth to say, if you're really going to find pathways to hope in your life, it's okay to get out from under the shame and to just tell the truth because there are lots of us out there that can come alongside and say it's me too and uh, I think we've found this book has been more an encouragement to people than anything we've ever done because it really takes it from yes childhood trauma is real and it often predicts bad things or struggles in our life but we can overcome those things whether it's child abuse, sexual assault, domestic violence, uh, or a pandemic. We can overcome it all, uh, and there is a pathway forward. So thank you. Thanks for letting me share with you. Blessings on you and all your work.
1: Oh, thank you so very much. I'm writing a book, and I've been writing it forever. And it is that story of hope is, is how I call it because, oh, my gosh, and I love, I just love the idea that you're, yes, putting your truth out there, but it doesn't stop with that. It, the, it's, it's the story of from trauma to triumph. Yeah, beautiful. All right. Well, everyone, thank you for joining us today on the Healing Place Podcast. And remember, until next time, be gentle with yourself. All right. Bye bye.
0: Thank you so much for listening today to the Healing Place Podcast with your host and trauma warrior, Terry Welbrock. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more about Terry, her mission, and the hope for healing journey visit terry's website at www.terrywellbrock.com thank you for liking commenting sharing and offering your reviews on our youtube channel audio outlets and facebook page and as terry reminds us until next time remember be gentle with yourself